You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Uh, we are going to read from Luke chapter 9, verse, uh, beginning in verse 49. And uh, let me begin. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. You can take a seat. Well, as we, uh, before we jump into this, uh, I saw many of you last night in costume uh, and all decked out for a fall festival. My voice has remained in costume and has decided to go about an octave lower this morning. Um, so i always told I had a face for radio, and now I get to use my radio voice this morning. So here we are. Um, but I, I want to just quickly uh, say thank you uh, to all of you who helped make last night possible. Uh, we had over 100 volunteers, uh, you guys all throwing in uh, from uh, making baked goods ahead of time. We had 47 cakes uh, that were made from scratch for the cakewalk. That's um, unbelievable. Um, and so, you know, little things like that that seem like, oh, that's not a big deal. That's a huge deal. Uh, and then all the booths, uh, so many of you are volunteering and helping to just load up kids with candy. Um, this place was packed. If you were here, you got to experience that. Uh, I know some of you couldn't be here, but you still helped in various ways, whether that was from setup or, or donating candy or, or cake or whatever that was. And I just want to say thank you so much because uh, it's not possible to do something like that for our community without all of us doing that. Um, but there's a couple of thank yous in particular that I want to throw out, and that's uh, to Carrie, uh, who's our, our, our kids ministry director, and, and Glory. Uh, man, they, they led us in such a great way, um, and I'm just so grateful for them and their creativity and what they threw together. But, um, but thank you to all of you, too. It was just such a nice open door to our community. I met lots of people who don't call Crossroads home, uh, but they were here taking our candy, and I'm, I'm all for it. I'm like, here, here's some more. Um, and so uh, just a great way to, to bless our community, but also uh, to bless our own community here. So thank you again for being a part. It was it was awesome. Uh, and this morning, uh, we step back into our study of the Gospel of Luke. Um, and I think it's important for us uh, when we're looking at this study, and we've, we've been in it for a while. We're in chapter 9 now. Um, it's important for us to remember that the people that we're talking about are real people. Uh, that the apostles, the disciples, the 12 that were following after Jesus were, were real people with real problems. Um, and it's important for us to remember that because what's beautiful about the biographical accounts that we have of Jesus is that we get to see the humanness of the disciples. They're not always at their best, which is good because all of us are not always at our best and we need to be reminded that we're in good company when we fail and yet Jesus doesn't abandon the disciples. He continues to pursue them. 
And we need to remember that the apostles, the disciples, they, they walked with Jesus. They ate with him. They laughed with him. They were challenged by him. Uh, they, they challenged him. They, they failed him. And at times they felt like he was failing them. But through it all, Jesus was transforming them. You see, Jesus takes each of us where we are, but in his kindness, he doesn't leave us there. To follow Jesus is an invitation to, to change. And we look in this story in particular, and we see two familiar names, the apostles James and John. And John was the apostle who, uh, according to church history, outlived all the other disciples. And in his later years, the message of John, the beloved disciple, who, who wrote his own biographical account of Jesus, the one who rested on Jesus as they shared a meal together, uh, the one who got to the tomb first and made sure that in his gospel he recounted that, that he beat Peter to the tomb because he's competitive just like the rest of us. This John was known for love. And in his old age, it was, it was said that he got to a point where he couldn't move around, but he was so uh, revered that the, the people would carry him from place to place, and his message continually was, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. But that John is not the John that we meet in this passage. It's, it's the same man, don't get me wrong, but, but what consumes John where we find him this morning is, is not love. It's, it's scarcity. It's insecurity. It's vengeance. So what causes one who is so consumed by the, the fires of insecurity and scarcity and vengeance to suddenly become consumed by the fire of mercy and love? And so, as we come to this passage, it reminds us of what happens when any of us follow Jesus, when we allow his ways to become our ways, and we become consumed by the fire of mercy, the fire of love, instead of the fire of fear and insecurity and vengeance. And so, let me pray for us as we begin, and then we'll jump in in verse 49. Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, as we open up your word, uh, would you open it up to us? Would your spirit guide us, give us ears to hear, eyes to see what you have before us? Lord, each of us comes into this space uh, carrying our own trials, our own faults, our own failures, our own frustrations. And so, God, we ask that in these moments, those would not distract us, that we would set them aside to put our eyes on you, that we would hear from you. And just as you transformed the disciples before us, would you transform us now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, where we pick back up is on the heels of the disciples, the followers of Jesus. They've just been arguing about who was the greatest among them. And, and if you weren't with us last week, Pastor Dane broke that down for us, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen because he let us in on the secret of being great. And as the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest, Jesus in this moment just takes a child in their midst, and, and he says, if you receive this child, you receive me. 
And what he was saying is, if you want to be great, be the least and the last. But as the disciples were drawing out lines as to who was the greatest, we're going to see that the conversation of drawing out lines continues as John, one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples, is letting Jesus know in this passage that he's seen someone doing something that he thinks is out of bounds. And he's got some concerns about it. So in verse 49, it says, John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now, John has witnessed someone. We don't have this person's name. We don't know who they are, but he's seen someone casting out demons in Jesus' name. By the very way that this story is being told, it sounds as though this person has been successful in casting out demons in Jesus' name, like the work's being done. And, And John and some others, again, we don't know who this crew was, tried to stop this unnamed person from doing this. And why did they try to stop this person? Because he was not one of the disciples. He's not one of them. See, John's making a statement here to Jesus. He, he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us, period. There's no question there, but when you read that statement, isn't, isn't there a question in there? Isn't John really saying that, Jesus, we're the only ones who can do this, right? Like you sent the 12 of us out. At the beginning of chapter nine, we see that Jesus sends out his disciples to go and, and carry on his ministry to cast out demons. And now they're seeing somebody else do that. And John's going, ah, aren't, aren't we the only ones who are supposed to be doing this? Aren't, aren't we the ones that have the right to do it? Who's this guy? Where's he coming from? And the, the danger of such thinking in any group is that we begin to believe that we're the only group that has the right to do things. John was threatened in this moment by the man casting out demons in Jesus' name because John believed that was his job. That's what he was supposed to be doing. This guy was encroaching on his territory. So this this fellow needs to be taken care of. He needs to be put in his place. He doesn't understand who the 12 actually are, the ones closest to Jesus actually are. This is their job, and he's not supposed to be doing this. But what's Jesus' response? How does Jesus respond as as John tells him this, like waiting for like the attaboy, or they're like, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't be doing this. What What does Jesus say? Jesus says, well done, John. I am so glad you stopped ministry from carrying out. Great job. Super proud. Well done. No, that's not, that's not what he says here. In verse 50, he says, But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. I mean, just read that again. The one who is not against you is for you. What's Jesus saying here? He's making it clear that the work of the kingdom is not exclusive work. It means all are invited to participate. And all who do so in the name of Jesus are not your enemies. There's not a limited supply of jobs for the kingdom. No, we're all called to participate and work in the kingdom of God for his glory. But have you ever been mad at somebody who is doing a good thing, but the thing that they were doing was your good thing, right? Like, that's, that's my, why are you doing what I normally do? And, and somehow the good actions of another feel threatening to you. Like, I know you're doing a good thing, but that's my good thing. That's, that's, you're kind of on my territory. 
Or, or think of it like this, like you're, you're on a, a team when you're growing up. If you're playing soccer, you're playing basketball, and a new kid arrives on your team, and they're good, right? So good, in fact, that they're, they're really good at your position, and that means suddenly your, your time playing is, is lessened, but the team's getting better, and the team's winning, and you're like, I'm confused because I'm I like that we're winning, but I don't like you because I'm not playing, right? There's a little bit of that. Like, I would be fine if someone hurt you so I could play again, right? We have a little bit of this in us. We're like, this is, this is good for the team, right, right, right. But what is not good for me? And John's showing a little bit of that in this moment. He's like, this is, this is good. I'm confused because I feel like that's my job. And this guy's doing it really well. Like, we just were trying to pray for that. That the demon was in that kid and we couldn't get him out. And this guy's casting out ge- demons in Jesus' name. I think, is he better than us? Like, is, are we going to get replaced? Like, there's a little bit of fear and insecurity cropping up here. There's a, there's a moment early in the pages of Scripture when, when the, the people of God were wandering in the wilderness. And Moses was leading them. God was using him in powerful ways. But there's this moment where God calls Moses to the tent of meeting where Moses would go. He'd meet with God face to face. He had this incredible relationship with God. But he says, Moses, don't come alone. I want you to come with the 70 elders around you. And so the 70 elders, they all come and gather around this tent. And in this moment, something powerful happens where Moses had experienced the spirit of God coming upon him so powerfully at times that his face was shining and people were afraid of Moses because like, you're glowing because you've been in the presence of God. But in this moment, it wasn't just Moses. Suddenly the spirit of God comes down and the spirit of God is given to all 70 of those elders who are around and they all begin to to prophesy and speak praise to God and it's this beautiful thing. Except of the 70, there was two that didn't actually make it out to the tent of meeting. They were still in town, in camp with everybody else. And so God, who's just not stingy, he's generous. He's not like, oh, you weren't here, so sorry, I'm not gonna do this for you guys. No, he still pours out his spirit on these two. So they're in the camp and they start prophesying and praising and speaking in God's name. And there's this kid who sees them. He's like, what are these guys doing? That's like Moses' job. So he runs out to Moses And as he's running out to Moses, he finds Joshua and he tells Joshua, like, this is what's happening in the camp. And Joshua, Joshua of like be strong and courageous fame who takes on the mantle of of Moses. Joshua's like, Moses, we gotta stop these guys. They can't be doing this. And what I love is Moses' response in this moment. What Moses says in Numbers 11, 29, Moses said to him, "Are are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. See, Moses understood his assignment. It wasn't about him. It was about the glory of God. And for Moses, what he experienced, he didn't want to be selfish with. He didn't want to hoard to himself. If everybody could experience this relationship with God, that's what he wanted for his people. That everyone would know God, that everyone would experience the spirit of God moving in them. See, the movement of God is generous and there's enough of God for everyone. There is no limit to how many can enjoy his presence. But too often, we like to limit who is in and who is out. Now, we live in a day and age where uh, making boundaries has become our aim, even within the church. Now, 
as I go down this road, I want to be, I want to be careful here because I'm not saying let's just get loosey-goosey and let whatever theology comes our way and we're, we're all good. No, we're, we're going to stand for some things. We're going to stand firmly to biblical conviction. If you start saying there's salvation through anyone other than Jesus, we're like, oh, we're out. Nope, it's Jesus, Jesus alone. That's who saves, rescues. There's no other name by which we are saved. There's things we are going to hold tightly to. But what's unfortunate and what I see before us is that the church, the the greater church today is known far more for its divisions than its unity. We want to battle all the time with other believers rather than bind together under the banner of Jesus. One One of the things that I have so enjoyed over the past few years is getting to know the other pastors and church leaders in our area. All up and down 49, up in Nevada City, down to, to Auburn and Rockland and different places. And, and we come together and we, we pray together. And I see good work happening. Because again, what's Jesus pointing John to here? There's no limit. We actually need more people doing the work of the kingdom. So let's, let's link arms. Let's partner together. Jesus is saying here to John, if this man is casting out demons in my name, then John, he's not against you. You're not going to lose your spot because he's here. No, he's for you. He's doing the very work that you yourself have been called to. And now you've got somebody else helping to shoulder that. There's more helping to get the work done. In a similar way, the Apostle Paul, when he was in prison, and he's he's writing to the Philippians, he said, indeed, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in the pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What's Paul talking about here? He's in prison for proclaiming the gospel. And there's people proclaiming the gospel in order to create a stir to keep Paul in prison. That's why they're preaching the gospel. Like if we create enough of a ruckus, they're going to keep him in chains. And that's a good thing. And Paul's like, keep me in chains all you want. You're proclaiming the gospel. That's all I want. That means I'm, I'm winning even while I'm in chains because Jesus is being proclaimed. And that is the aim. If the name of Jesus is being proclaimed, glorified, magnified, amen. The aim of the kingdom is for more people to enter the kingdom because the kingdom of God is generous. And so Jesus reminds the disciples here, don't hoard the work of the kingdom. There's enough work for everybody. And for us today, I think we, we don't, need much reminder when we look around uh, that we need all the help we can get. We need all the other fellow believers that we can walk alongside with and we need to seek those relationships out. That's a good thing. I love what God is doing in and through our church. I love what God is doing in and through each and every one of you and I want to see that explode out these doors and I want to see it uh, reach out into the foothills as in heaven But I also know it's going to take other churches proclaiming the gospel of Jesus so that more and more can come to know him. And we're going to partner with those other churches and we're going to band together under the banner of Jesus because there's room for all of us. Because the kingdom of God is a generous kingdom. I mean, imagine if we framed our thinking around this idea of Jesus. What did he say 
He said, do not stop him for the one who's not against you is, is for you. See, our default, I feel like what our culture is, is teaching us all the time, everyone's out to get you. Everyone's a competitor. Everyone's an enemy. Everyone's after you. Everyone's here to replace you. We have this narrative that runs through our head. But what if in the kingdom of God, not everyone's trying to take you down? See, the enemy would love for us to get so caught up in this defensive posture that we, we bunker down and we back up and we begin to, to sink into this divided position that we just stop making much of Jesus because we're just so worried about protecting our own instead of it being offensive for the kingdom of God and moving out and proclaiming his goodness. And so when John's like, should, should we have stopped that guy? Jesus is like, No. If he's he's not against you, he's for you, John. There's plenty of work. You're fine. Do what I've called you to do. Don't worry about him. I'll take care of him. And so now we move to to verse 51, which seems like just kind of a subtle transition, but is actually a really significant moment in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is just this small line, but what it's reminding us of is that we have been spending time in Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's been doing all these things in the area of Galilee. But now there's a shift that's about to take place. And from verse 51 of chapter 9 all the way up to chapter 19, verse 27, we're now making our way to Jerusalem. But I love what this says because it says that Jesus set his face to go up to Jerusalem. This idea of setting one's face carries with it a prophetic determination. Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows that he will be delivered into the hands of all who will hang him upon the cross. Why is this important? Because Jesus was not surprised by the death that was coming his way. He willingly, knowingly enters into it. Jesus was not surprised by his death. He sets his face towards it, knowing that in order to free humanity from our sin, from our death, it was he alone who could rescue us. We, we talked about when Jesus was atop of the mountain and he was talking with Moses and Elijah as he was, the transfiguration as he's glowing and they were talking about what? His departure, his exodus. Right? And we said that Moses had brought about an exodus where he had, he, God had used him to free the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt. But now Jesus is coming for a truer and greater exodus to save us from the slavery of sin and death. That's where he's going to Jerusalem for because he knows that there's a debt to be paid and he alone can pay it. And he's going to pay it on behalf of all of us. And so now he begins to set his face towards Jerusalem. And I think it's worthwhile just to pause to allow the, uh, the significance, the magnitude of that statement sit in. That Jesus has come, that you may have life. And that he's come willingly to lay down his life that you may live. The gospel of his kingdom is good news for everyone. The creator of the universe has invited each and every one of us in this room to live in right relationship with him. And he made it possible, not by you earning it, 
Not by you, you, you doing it right, trying hard enough. No, it is made possible by the blood of Jesus. Our debt has been paid in full by the willing sacrifice of our Savior King who set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him, but knowing that it was worth it. And so Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem. But to do this, he's got to travel south from the Galilee region. He's got to make his way down to Jerusalem. But we're told uh, that he chooses to make his way through the territory of the Samaritans which proves to be slightly problematic. Verse 52, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Jesus sends a crew of his people ahead to go and find lodgings. At this point, Jesus, wherever he travels, there's starting to be crowds surrounding and pressing in all around him. And it wasn't unheard of for a rabbi like Jesus to send some of his disciples ahead to kind of make preparations of where we're going to stay, where we're going to eat, where we're going to do all those things. And so he sends this crew ahead of him uh, into a Samaritan village, but we are told that the people there did not receive him. And why does it say that they did not receive him? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Well, what's the problem here? Why Why is that an issue? Well, the problem here does not actually begin here. It goes back centuries before. There's a centuries-long animosity that had been building between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. The Samaritan people traced their lineage back to the northern kingdom. When God's uh, people were split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom, uh, the Samaritans saw themselves as uh, descendants of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And in 722 BC, when the northern kingdom was destroyed and no more, there were some that were taken away as exiles, and there were some that remained in the land. And some of the Samaritans remained in the land. But by remaining in the land, there was other foreign nations that moved in that they began to marry and they began to have family with and to chase after other gods. But throughout this whole time, the Samaritan people believed that their history was actually the true story of Israel. And so they held firmly, tightly, zealously to the first five books of Scripture, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They held those five books, but they had their own version of it with some edits that they had made. And whereas the people of God, the Jewish people, they worshipped in the the temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And that's where they saw as the true form of worship was to take place. And they were a people that was zealous for their form of worship, and they longed for the coming Tahib. And this Tahib, or Messiah, as they would call him, would come like the one Moses had promised in Deuteronomy 18.18, when Moses had spoke that there's another prophet who's come, you must listen to him. And so when Jewish people would cut through Samaria to get to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage or on a feast to go and worship at the temple... The Samaritans had begun this fun game where they would harass those pilgrims going through. They would heckle them. But eventually this heckling turned into actual violence where lives were lost because they saw these people as apostate people going the wrong direction to the wrong temple and coming into contradiction to their version of God. But this animosity didn't just go one way. It went both ways. 
Because in 128 BC, the Jewish leaders of the day actually went into Mount Gerizim and destroyed the temple of the Samaritans. This is not a good way uh, to build relationships. And so the the animosity continued uh, to grow. And then retaliation, the Samaritans in AD 6 or 7, somewhere in there, actually snuck onto the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, bringing human bones with them that they spread along the temple to make it unclean. Because they were just trying to get in the way of the Jewish people as much as they could. So with this as our background, understanding the animosity that that had been built up for for centuries, that Samaritan children were taught to distrust Jewish children, and Jewish children were taught to distrust the Samaritans, we can see this moment, it has built in tension already. And yet, what route does Jesus choose to take to go to Jerusalem? He purposefully goes through Samaria. Samaria. Why? Because the gospel is good news for everyone, even a Samaritan. This is what Jesus is communicating in this moment. But as Jesus sends his messengers ahead of him, they're turned away. Why? Because Jesus had his face set towards the wrong temple, according to the Samaritans. He's going to Jerusalem. He should just be staying in Mount Gerizim. That's where true worship takes place. He was just another Jew on his way to Jerusalem. And so the path becomes blocked. And when you have dealt with centuries of animosity, how would you receive this news? Verse 54, we we get a glimpse into the heart of James and John. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Okay, a couple of things here that stand out to me. James and John... They're really living up to the hype of their name, right? Mark, in his gospel in 317, he calls them uh, Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, right? Like, this this fits, right? Like, we're going to call down some lightning. Let's consume them. They're ready to throw down, right? They've got this built up, like, you're going to get in the way of Jesus. How dare you? We'll we'll, we'll destroy you. The second thing that stands out to me after what they experienced in following Jesus, right? Like we want to jump to the ramifications of the things that they're calling out, but let's just stop for a second, peel back and go, they really believed after what they had experienced in following Jesus, after witnessing the miracles he had done, after being sent out in his power and his authority, that if Jesus had said, let's call down fire, they could call down fire, right? Like, think about that. Like, they were like, yeah, if Jesus says yes, we'll do it. We can do it. In his name, we can, we can do it. Right? I mean, imagine you're driving on 49, someone cuts you off, and you're like, Lord, it's time. <laughs> Call it down. Call it in your name. Call it down. Right? James and John, they're not messing around. But also think back to when they were up on that mountaintop, and <laughs> they're praying alongside Jesus. And as they come to, because they were asleep, and they look up, and they see Moses and Elijah... Elijah, a prophet, who is known for calling down fire. Multiple occasions. At one point, I'd encourage you to read 2 Kings 1. Just read chapter 1. Just a a fun story of uh, some of the escapades of Elijah. But he was confronting the, the northern king because he was pursuing false gods, lesser gods. And as he was confronting the northern king... The king sent a troop of men, 50, uh, of 50 men of his, his army to come and, 
and speak to Elijah, right? Like, hey, we just want to talk to you, like 50 of us versus one of you. And Elijah's like, if I'm a man of God, I can call down fire. And he does. They're gone, right? Read it. It's, it's, read it. Just read it. Because it, it happens a second time. So 50 more come out. And they're like, if I'm a man of God, and fire's coming down, they're gone, right? They, they, and then they send another troop. And cliffhanger, I'll let you find out what happens. Read 2 Kings 1 to, to finish the end of that story. But it's not unheard of. They're like, we've seen this pattern. Like, Lord, let us call down fire. That's the frustration that they're going to in this moment. That's the, the, the anger. They're not messing around. But do you remember when Jesus sent out the disciples, what he told them to do if, if somebody did not accept you, if they reject you? Do you remember what Jesus said at the beginning of chapter 9? He's like, if they will not accept you, you destroy them. That's not what he said. That's not what he said, okay? I'm just trying to get your attention. It's not what he said. What did he say? So someone's going to black out. No, I heard that Jesus said destroy them. That's what we're supposed to do. No, Luke 9.5, Luke 9.5 Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. If they won't receive you, if they reject you, you just shake the dust off. That's testimony against them. What was Jesus referring to there? I know we looked at this once already, but what was he saying there? That their rejection will be a testimony against themselves. Their actions will not go unnoticed. God is not unaware. God sees all. Vengeance is not ours, it's the Lord's. And for those who reject him, for those who push God away, it will be far worse for them than any punishment we could ever come up with. I think this is so important for us to realize that there is a true day of judgment that will come and you will either be for the Lord or you will be against him. The choice is yours. But if you are against him, what you will suffer is eternal separation from him. Eternal separation from him, from God. But if you, you say yes to him, You'll spend all of eternity in his presence. This is what he's coming for. This is what he's proclaiming to us, that there's a better way. There's life with him. Do not miss the invitation because the day is coming. Judgment is coming. But why has Jesus come? He's come, as Luke reminds us, to seek and save the lost, to extend this invitation of good news to everyone. So while the Samaritan's actions will not go unnoticed, the time for fire is not now. That day will come. There will be a day of fire. But for now, the invitation is what matters. See, this is so important because the Samaritans don't go away in the gospel accounts. They don't go away in the narrative of the early church. No, Luke continues to write about what happens in Acts in the early church. After Jesus dies, he resurrects, he ascends. He sends out his church on mission to proclaim and bear witness to him in Jerusalem and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And we actually see Samaritan people coming to know the Lord. In his kindness, he does not obliterate them in this moment or allow John and James to do that. Because he continues to extend the invitation of life to them. And so we read in verse 55. After they say, should we, should we call down fire? Is that what we should do? He, Jesus, he turned to them and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Jesus rebukes the disciples. 
boys, this is not the way. Simmer down, sons of thunder. This is not how we roll. Not today. We're going to kick the dust off our feet. We're going to keep moving on. Now, really quick, because I think this is worth deviating on. Keep this train of thought right over here. We're going to jump into a totally different topic because I think it's important. Okay? It's worth noting. If you're reading along in the ESV or the NIV or the NASB uh, translation this morning, there's multiple translations. I just lost someone because you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. There's various translations of Scripture. And, and when you read what I've just read, in verse 55, it says, but he turned and he rebuked them. Now, if you're reading from the New King James Version, you will read in verse 55, it says, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of the spirit you are of. Okay, so look at the reference points. They're both the same. Look at what they're saying, different things. That's all I got. Figure that out. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Okay, you may notice this in verse 54 as well, if you're reading from the New King James Version, when, when James and John say, should we call down fire as well? In the New King James, it says, like Elijah, but that's not present in the ESV, NIV, NASB, and, and several other translations. So, so why am I bringing this up? Because as you're reading along, it's important to pay attention to these things. That in, your, in most of your Bibles, uh, there should be uh, some smaller numbers or maybe even an asterisk that's calling out something. Uh, they'll have a footnote that says some manuscripts add or some manuscripts do not contain and it'll give you a phrase that, oh, this is not part of certain manuscripts. And that's helpful if you know what that means. What is this about and why is there a difference? Well, here's the beauty of what we have in our hands and what we have and can have confidence in. There are so many manuscripts of New Testament letters, New Testament writings, uh, the gospel accounts, uh, that we actually have enough to compare and contrast, some super early, some a little bit later. And so when there's a translation committee and they're setting down, because it's really important for us to remember that the Bible was not written in English. Uh, the Bible was, came to us in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, and the Greek language, a little bit of Aramaic. And so everything's a translation to get to this English form. And so the committees that form these, they take the best versions of the manuscripts. And sometimes you will find a variance in those two manuscripts. And in a moment like this, often what that's attributed to is that somebody, when they were taking that down, they added a little scribal note trying to like create almost like how we have study Bibles and there's little footnotes that give you an explanation. It's like somebody was adding that in the margin and then over time that just got copied into the text itself as though that's what it was. There's, there's not a ton of these, uh, but there's little moments of that. But we have so many different manuscripts that we can look at that we can have great confidence that what we have in our hands uh, is, is accurate. And so uh, I know for some of you right now, you're like, why did you pause here? Uh, you're actually making this worse, and I'm a little concerned. Uh, and some of you are like, I don't care about this. Let's just keep moving. And others of you are like, no, I need to know because this is the kind of questions that I have. I don't want to shy away from these. Uh, scripture stands up. I'm not afraid to like open the can of worms. But if this, if this trail intrigues you, I want to recommend a book to you uh, called Scribes and Scripture. 
scribes in scripture, and it just talks around how did we get the Bible, how did the tra- what's the translation philosophy, some different things like that. Um, it's got some clear moments, some heady moments, um, but it, it will help you in this conversation if that's a question that you have. But I, I want to leave you with this. The evidence and the writings that we have available to us when it comes to scripture are astounding, and they far exceed other ancient historical writings that we read with, with confidence that have far less evidence than the Bible has. Like, we have so much confirming what we have in our hands. Uh, so again, if that's a question, I just don't want to skip over those things, especially if you're reading along and you're like, wait, you missed a verse. Um, why, why did you skip that part? I, I wasn't skipping it, but that's just a translation thing. So pay attention to those things. Um, okay, let's jump back over here. All right. Jesus is rebuking the disciples. They've just said, let's call down fire. Let's just obliterate everything. Let's just do this. And Jesus rebukes them. We don't have full understanding of how he rebukes them, what he says. We don't really know how that conversation went other than that what James and John were planning was not the plans of Jesus. He's like, no, that's not how we're going to roll. And so they simply move on to another village. Jesus with his face set towards Jerusalem. Now next week, we're going to continue to look at uh, the cost of discipleship as Jesus talks around what, what does that look like to be a disciple and the cost of following after Jesus. But this morning, I want, I want to come back to what we just read. Jesus walks through enemy territory. Okay? Jesus walks through enemy territory with his face set towards Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him in Jerusalem, knowing that hostility is there. Like he's not going to, he gets greeted when he comes in. There's like the triumphal entry, but that turns real quick. And he knows, he knows what's waiting for him there. And so he wastes no opportunity to reach even those considered the enemy. I mean, just think about it. He goes through Samaria on purpose, extending grace, extending mercy. And when he's rejected, his disciples are ready just to, to throw down, call down fire. Like let's, let's take them out. And he rebukes them. Why? Because as we have received mercy, we are to be a people of mercy that extend mercy. As people who were once enemies of God. Now get, scripture tells us, each of us in this room, at one point, were enemies of God. We were on the other side of him. By our lives, our actions, the sin that was in us, we're on the other side, enemies of God. And what did he do? God in his great love walks through the enemy territory of our hearts for us that we could find life in him. And so we see him doing the same here. As enemies of God, we have been reconciled. What was once torn apart has now been brought back together through Jesus. And so if we, as enemies of God, are now a part of his kingdom and we've received mercy where we didn't deserve it, we've done nothing to earn that, but he's given us this unmerited favor, this grace, how can we as a people of mercy who have received his grace withhold it from anyone? How can we step back and say, ah, the line stops with you. As an enemy of the king, Jesus didn't send his troops, didn't send any, he sent himself into the enemy territory of your heart to rescue and redeem you. And so I want us to pause and I want us to ask ourselves, 
Who are the ones in our lives that we're ready to call down fire on? Who are the ones that bring out our insecurities, our fears, our jealousness? Now, this list may populate much quicker than you want it to. But who are those that you feel threatened by? That if you could, fire. And what do we see in the actions of Jesus time and time again? The extension of what? Mercy. The extension of grace. The extension of opportunity to join with him, to find life in him. This is why Paul, and I love reading Paul's writing because when you think of Paul's life, a true enemy of the kingdom, one who came against it with such force that he was taking out others. Uh, when, when Stephen was stoned, the, the jackets were laid at the approval of Paul. And what did Jesus do? Goes into the enemy territory of Paul's heart and transforms him into a warrior for the kingdom. You think Paul understood mercy? You think Paul understood grace when he would walk into a church and there would be family members there that were missing their, their father or their brother because Saul had approved their death? Do you think Paul understood mercy and grace? And so he's writing to Titus at this moment. Titus, here's the things you need to keep in front of you. Here's the important things as you're leading the church. Here's what you need to know. In, in Titus 2.11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it transforms us. It changes us. Renouncing the way of the world, we now walk in the way of the kingdom, becoming zealous for good works and not for good works' sake, but for the good of God's kingdom. That we get to join in, that the world around us sees our good works and doesn't say, that guy's awesome. No, they say, his heavenly father is awesome. So what are we consumed by? fires of our own insecurities? Are we consumed by the fires of our fears? Are we consumed by the fire of, of vengeance? Or are we being consumed by the fire of God's mercy? I want to close by reading this passage over you. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and just to hear it. And if some of you are like, I'm going to fall asleep, Andrew, if I do that, then keep them open. <laughs> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You were dead in your trespasses. You were an enemy of God, and he walked into enemy territory, bringing his mercy, his grace. And when we say yes to him, we are a new creation in him, but we are also called to be ambassadors of this grace, of this mercy, wherever we are. So we take the words of Jesus that say, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And because of what Jesus has accomplished, all who say yes to him and turn to him have a place at his table. And so this morning, we're going to close in song, but I also uh, want to close with the opportunity for you to come to the table of remembrance that it's available to you, where we partake of the bread, we partake of the cup. And as we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup, we remember God's mercy. We remember the debt that he has paid. And so over these next moments, I want to encourage you to, to pause and allow him to root out any fears, any insecurities, any sense of vengeance, and begin to align your heart to beat with his mercy. So when you're ready at your own pace and time, the, the table awaits you and you can partake of that. But let me pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Father, we come before you grateful for your kindness, grateful for your patience. Lord, each of us has flaws and faults. Each of us has come against you in some way in our lives. And still, you pursue us. And still, you offer grace. And still, you are merciful. And so, Father, this morning, would we embrace your mercy? Would we allow it to form us and to shape us? That we would be a people that walk as you walk, that love as you love. Jesus, those people you bring to mind that we see as enemy and we see as other that can consume us with rage, that can consume us with jealousy, that can consume us with insecurity, that can consume us with so many fears. Father, we release them to you, trusting that you see all, you know all, that our worries, our fears, you, you, you know them, and so we give them to you. And we ask that we would be consumed of mind by your mercy, by your grace, by your goodness. Lord, we need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. 
So move in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved. May we walk in this truth, knowing his mercy. May we walk in this truth, extending his mercy. And may you know the grace, the unmerited favor of God, and the true peace and wholeness that comes from him. God bless you. If you need prayer this week, we'll be down front. We'd love to pray alongside you. But we look forward to seeing you next week as we continue in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the cost of discipleship. God bless you.